kids are dismissed. Kids are dismissed if you're going to Children's Church. All right, good morning, church. My name is Doug, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open it up to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, as a church, we are walking through this summer the Ten Commandments. And this morning, we find ourselves looking at the Third Commandment. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, specifically going to be looking at verse 11. As I've said before, if you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, he's going to preach on one verse... This is going to be quick. You'd be wrong. Okay? Sorry. It'll probably maybe a little quicker than normal, but we'll see. As the Spirit leads, I suppose. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. A couple weeks ago, we looked at, chap uh, sorry, yeah, first commandment. In the first commandment, God is primarily concerned, we learned, about the object of our worship. God provides with absolute clarity in the first commandment that only the one true God is to be worshipped. There's no room for substitutes, for replacements, or imposters. There's one God, one God alone that should be worshipped. In the second commandment, last week we opened it up and we looked at it, and what we found out was that just as he provides clarity on the object, on the who of our worship, God also instructs us very clearly on the how of our worship, that we should not worship Idols. We should not worship idols in substitute of the one true God, and we should also not worship idols as a means by which we worship the one true God. So first two commandments. Third commandment that we'll see this morning, chapter 5, verse 11, we'll see is very similar to the first two commandments. It's similar in that ultimately what it's helping us do, just like the first two were concerned with, is helping us to take God seriously, to take him seriously and to treat him with the respect, with the honor, and with the reverence that only he deserves, okay? Third commandment is going to help us to that end as well. What we've seen and what we will see throughout the summer as we go through the series is that the first five commandments, what they sort of share in common is that they are primarily directing our gaze upward towards God. They are primarily concerned, the first five, with helping us worship God as he is and helping us to be a people who keep God first in our life. The first five commandments help to that end. The second five, what we'll see later on in the summer, help us to kind of lift our gaze downward and think horizontally about how we live with one another. Okay, so that's how you can kind of divide up the Ten Commandments. This morning, as I said, we've got one verse before us, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. I know you just got super comfortable in your chair, but I'm going to ask that as I read if you're able and agreeable to stand with me to show respect and reverence for God and his word, I'm going to read just one verse and pray for us and then we'll dive in. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Listen up. That's what it says. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come to you this morning. We are needy people, as Will said earlier. We are in need right now of your spirit to come to uh, remind us and to declare and to proclaim your truth to us. Lord, we're in need of you to take that truth and to write it on our hearts. 
and to shape and to form us to be the people that you have called us to be. Lord, and so we need you. I need you. And we trust you right now. I trust you that you will do exactly what you and you alone can do. Lord, would you use this word? Would you write it on our hearts? Would you shape us into the people you've called us to be? We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Well, as we approach the third commandment, let me just tell you, I've shared this before here at East, but I'm growing up. Uh, my grandmother, lots of grandkids in our family, my grandmother had a phrase that she was kind of famous for saying to all of us to sort of kind of put us on the right path and help us to go in the way that is, uh, you know, admirable in all of the earth. And her phrase was this. She would look at me and she would say, little Dougie, it's my name. Uh, don't, you don't have to call me that, though. I see the snicker over there. Don't be writing notes now. Okay. Little Dougie, she'd say, don't cuss drink, smoke, or chew, and don't date girls who do, okay? Her instruction was very clear, very clear. She was concerned with what I was maybe putting in my mouth and what was coming out of my mouth and who I was associating with, all right? Don't cuss, drink, smoke, or chew, and don't date girls who do. When I approach the third commandment historically, I tend to think of the third commandment as sort of a means by which, kind of in accordance with my grandmother's wisdom, God helps us avoid, we'll just say, gutter language, okay? Foul speech. I tend to think of it primarily sort of in that realm. What we'll see this morning as we consider the third commandment together is that there's actually a much broader meaning, a, a perhaps more significant meaning than we had thought before. So the, sort of the big idea, sorry, the big aim for this morning, the big idea is simply this. You can write it down. I'm going to try to establish what the text is this. That the name of God is to be taken seriously, not just in our speech, but with our whole life. I'll say it one more time. What this text is calling us to, what I believe it's calling us to this very morning as God's people, is that we take God's name seriously, not just in the way that we talk about it, but in all of our lives. What we'll see is that God's, yes, he's concerned with our speech, with how we speak about his name, but he's also concerned with how we reflect and bear his name throughout all of our lives, okay? So that's sort of the big idea for today. The commandment is about treating the name and the reputation of God as it is holy, deserving of respect and admiration. So to help us to this end, we're going to make sort of three moves throughout the message. The first is we're going to consider together the name of God. Then we will turn and consider together the purpose of God. And then finally, as we drive it home through application, we'll be thinking about the people of God. So first, the name of God. Names matter. Names matter. My wife and I, um, for one of our children, I will, this individual will, for the sake of the illustration, remain nameless right now. She is not, oh, I just give it away. So it's one of two. I keep, okay. Anyways. You know, as we were thinking through names for our children, we had one name for one of our children picked out before we went into the hospital. We thought about it, prayed about months, lots of different names. And if you've gone through this process, you know that it's, it's just almost too much to bear. 
Like this person is going to be traveling around for the rest of their life with this name attached to them. Oh, it's a significant responsibility. It's fun, but it's a huge responsibility. So we walk into the hospital about ready to, to you know, have this beautiful child, and we have a name in our mind. And when that beautiful child comes out, we're, we're holding this precious little baby, and we're thinking of the name, and the doctor's like, what, do you have a name for the child? And we both kind of looked at each other, and we're like, we did have a name for the child, but this name just isn't going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. So for about a day, you know, after having the baby, we, we thought and we prayed and we, she, you know, she remained nameless for like 24 hours because the name we had, had kind of decided on just didn't seem to fit the baby that was in our hands. Okay? It didn't seem to fit. It's a big deal. Names matter. If you've been paying attention to news in our community just in the last week, you will see that, yes, names matter. For example, we know the sort of ongoing um, decision to allow NCAA collegiate athletes to be compensated for the use of their name, image, and likeness. It's sort of a controversial issue right now, and it's in the front pages of our even community's newspaper. It's not the only story this week, if you just flip back in the last couple of days, about a name and the significance of names that has sort of captured the attention of our community. We, we know that our Johnson County Board of Supervisors has also just changed the namesake of Johnson County. So we still live in Johnson County, but not the Johnson County named after the former early 1800s Vice President Richard Mentor Johnson who has really no connection to our community, but rather we changed the namesake, and now it's named after Lulu Merle Johnson, the first African-American female doctoral recipient from the University of Iowa. Okay, so a little more local connection. So the name is the same, but the namesake has changed. Why so much, why so much to do about a name? Well, I'll tell you why, because names matter. And if you have a strong opinion about either one of those stories, you're just proving my point. Names matter matter to us. They don't just matter to us. Names are not just a big deal to you and to me and to our world today. Names, a name, is a big deal to God as well. In the Old Testament world and cultures sort of surrounding Israel, the name, the names of God, what they called their deities, was significant. Knowing the name of a deity would indicate that you had a relationship with that deity, with that God. Therefore, you would have influence with that God. You could call on the name of that God for the sake of blessing or even for the sake of cursing. In the Old Testament world, names of God mattered because it gave you access to that God. Think about us in our current world today. I, many of you are like me and you have phones that just blow up all day long with spam calls. Okay, Some precious girl years ago apparently gave my number as her number, and her name is Melissa. And the reason why I know this is because at least two, three times a day, somebody calls me, and the greeting on the phone is, hello, Melissa, da 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 Well, for me, it's an instant indicator that this person doesn't know me. My name is not Melissa, okay? Don't call me Melissa. Don't call me little Dougie. All right, I'm not giving you more names to call me this morning, but my name is not Melissa. The very fact that the person calls me Melissa is an indicator they don't know me, therefore they have no access to me. I'm not Melissa. To know the name of someone is to have access to them. So it is with God. To know the name of God is to have access 
to God. And the amazing thing about our God is that he, he gives us his name. He communicates. He has shared with his people what his name is. And to know God is to know and to claim his name. In fact, knowledge of the personal name of God was arguably the greatest gift that God gave his people. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, when God spoke to Moses, if you remember the story, he, he came down, he saw the sufferings of his people in Egypt, he heard their cry, he knew the oppression that they were facing, and God came down, and he visited Moses, and he commissioned Moses. He had heard their cry, and he knew. And he commissioned Moses to deliver his people. And when he revealed himself, he did not reveal himself to Moses through an image, through a face of his, but rather he did through his voice by speaking his name. Moses recognized the need to know the name of God. If, if you go on, if he says, if I go on your behalf to deliver your people, they're going to want to know who sent me. God, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to call you? What should I tell him? What is your name? Moses understood the importance of knowing what God's name was. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, God answers Moses with a somewhat cryptic response. That's what he says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout generations. It's a very intriguing passage. A shortage of implications and meanings. God repeats the simple verb to be in Hebrew. Three times it's repeated. I am who I am. I am has sent me to say. Okay, three times. In Hebrew, the, the name of God would be pronounced ultimately as Yahweh. And it recalls the two I am verbs hitched together where God says of himself, I am who I am. This name is almost always, if you were reading your Bible, looking at it right now, is almost always in the English translation of the Bible, translated as the word Lord in all capitals. So if you're just reading through the Bible and you see the word Lord, all capitals, it is a reference to Yahweh. We treat it just like we would a proper noun, like that of Peter or John, built out of the word for I am and reminded us each that God absolutely is. Again, the implications are endless. The God who is has no beginning. The God who simply is has no end. The God who is is in himself absolute reality. The God who is is utterly independent. The God who is is constant. You see, it can go on and on. Tremendous amount of implications just by God revealing, disclosing his name. It's significant. But for our purposes for us this morning, we are reminded that for God to reveal his name to his people was ultimately an invitation for them to know him. Not as a distant sort of out there kind of God, but as a right here, right now, personal, intimate God. One of the most basic steps in forming a relationship, we know this, is by learning somebody's name. Odds are you walked in here this morning, and I hope that you've probably already met somebody. Who, and one, one of the things you probably did, I heard it go on back there by the children's counter, as you found out that person's name. 
right? As a means to take a first step towards a relationship. For some of us, this is easy. For some of us, it's kind of hard. I was at a baseball game recently, and there was a little toddler who ran up next to her mom, and she declared and proclaimed just joyously, Mom, Mom, I made a new friend. Maybe three or four years old, and the mom's first response was, What's her name? And the toddler gave pause. She'd just been playing with an individual for an hour or two hours and did not get her name, did not know this individual's name. This is not unusual. The mom knew that this was likely the case and trying to help her. Hey, being a good friend, having a good relationship, you must know their name. So for God to reveal, disclose, tell us who he is, is no shortage of his grace and his mercy given to us. An invitation for us to have him as our God, a relationship with him. His name matters. His name matters. It's a big deal. If his name matters, there's, the next move I want to make is I want us to consider not just the name of God, but I want us to consider the purpose of God. The text doesn't just tell us that the name of God is significant. It doesn't just say, know the name. Rather, it gives us sort of a window into an understanding of how we are to respond and treat his name. Okay? Listen to what it says. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not take. The, the meaning of that word is, is simply, in, many, in some translations, is to, to lift up. Okay? To lift up. What we are supposed to do as God's people, we will see, is to lift up his name. We are not supposed to lift it up in vain. That word simply means empty or worthlessness or void of purpose. So, so you could read the commandment, you shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, your God, to worthlessness. God's name is to be treated as it is, precious, holy. Don't speak of it as if it is void of purpose couldn't be further from the truth. His name is full of purpose because he's a God who has eternal purposes. The Old Testament tells us over and over again that God acted throughout Israel and for Israel, ultimately for his glory and for the sake of his name. If you consider, why did God go to Egypt and deliver his people from, from Egyptian slavery? Well, God tells us very clearly. He says, I acted for the sake of my name. Out of Egypt, we know that God's people wandered around in the wilderness. In his mercy, we see that his mercy was on them in their wanderings throughout the wilderness. Even though they were ungrateful, disobedient, the Bible tells us that they profaned his name, turned from it, and even worshipped idols. Yet how did this gracious, merciful God respond? The Bible says God withheld his hand and acted. Why would he do that? For the sake of his name. These people bore his name. They're about to head into the promised land. Conquest the land of Canaan, the promised land. There are people in there that are waiting. And before they go in there, God wants them to know precisely what they are to do before they go in there. Years later, looking back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 23, listen to this. The description, and who is like your people Israel? 
the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. If you continue to read the story, remember Moses is standing there preparing God's people to go into the land. When they go in there, there are people that have other gods and who, who know of them as they kind of make their way one victory after another. They hear what God has done. They see and hear the wonders of this God as they see people, his people marching across the land. And the result is that God's name is lifted up because God's people are on the move. And when God's people are on the move, according to God's way, God's glory is displayed throughout the earth. They walk into the land and people already know of this God that they serve because they bear his name. He has redeemed them. The Bible teaches us throughout that the works of God have as their ultimate goal the display of God's glory. God is working and he is moving in and through his people ultimately for the grand purpose of putting his name, his fame on display for all the world to see. It's his grand purpose. And when you catch a glimpse of God's glory, when God has revealed himself to you, there is a response that is appropriate. And we see it throughout the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 6, a vision of God comes to the prophet Isaiah. And his response, woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a land of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel, appearances of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What does he do? Falls on his face. Daniel, three times falling on his face after receiving visions of God and heavenly beings. John, in Revelation, says that he fell at his feet as though dead after seeing a vision of the heavenly Christ. When confronted by the reality of God, we are to follow the instruction of God and, and, and worship him. Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That is the appropriate response of God's disclosure of himself. That's how his name is to be treated and revered as such. God has, John Piper says, God has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. It's what he's working towards. God's concern for his glory, his people, and his, his unfolding purpose throughout eternity are directly linked to his concern for his name. And the ultimate aim throughout eternity, what we see just even in the text and in these examples, is that the ultimate aim throughout eternity is not only for the glory of his name, but also for the good of his people. As God delivers them, he invites them into freedom. He's delivering them to a land that will include their flourishing. These things are not at odds with each other. His glory and our good. But rather, when we align our purposes with God's eternal purposes, we are a people who thrive, who can stay standing regardless of what comes at us. It doesn't mean it's smooth sailing. 
But it, when we align ourselves with the purposes of God, we experience, we taste and know true freedom. And we get an, an idea of what it looks like to flourish in the land as his people. This is what God ultimately is working towards. The proclamation of his name across the nations, his eternal purposes. So how are we as the people of God to respond? Somebody's got to remind me to get that thermometer, thermostat fixed because it is like blazing up here. My goodness, sorry. The people of God, how are we to respond? See, here's the deal. As we look at these words to live by, and they are just that, what God is doing is sort of charting a course. This is what the godly life looks like. And he wants us as his people to, to walk according to his ways and according to his words. And so these are not just supposed to be, they are words that we should know, that we should commit to memory, words that we understand and can say and teach. But they're more than that. These are words that should describe how we as God's people live our lives, how we approach him in worship, how we conduct our affairs, how we live in our neighborhood, how we go to work, how we learn at school, the way we treat those around us, whoever they are that God puts in our path. These are words for us as God's people to live by. And so for God's people, I'm going to make three sort of primary ways that, that Jews in this context would blaspheme or maybe break this commandment. And I want to draw a direct application to us in our context today, okay? The first, how would a Jew break this commandment? I guess the question we're trying to ask is, what type of people need to hear this, okay? Here's the type. The type who don't take God's name seriously. By the way, they swear oaths to each other, okay? Old Testament scholar writes that the third commandment is a prohibition in their time to them against those who might swear false judicial oaths in the name of Yahweh. Israelites were to be truth-tellers. Therefore, lying under oath was forbidden. And God's name was not to serve as a convenient cover for your lie. Jesus would affirm the spirit of truth-telling, the standard of truth-telling in Matthew chapter 5, when he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Telling the truth is so important that swearing by God's name just isn't simply necessary because we should be a people who are radically committed to the truth. What does this mean for us today in our, our context where judicial oaths and promises are not really taken in the personal name of God? How do we break this commandment? Well, we break this commandment today Whenever we attach God's name to lies, to false teaching, to our selfish ambitions, 
We violate the third commandment when we associate his name in an attempt to validate or affirm our ideas or our opinions or our agenda. This is probably hard for us to imagine, right? No, we see it happening everywhere. I think a, a prime example in sort of our changing political and cultural landscape is a, te a temptation, regardless of how you vote or what party you align or affiliate yourself with, to do just this, to be able to say, this is God's way. And by doing so, you alienate all other Christians. As followers of Jesus, we are people of this book, and our convictions come primarily from the Bible, not from our political associations or affiliations. So let's not be the type of people who try to affirm or who validate what we hold dearly and as a, as a result, push other Christians away from us. But rather, let's be people who, ins let's, let's not be people who insist that every Christian ought to agree with me on everything, but rather who fight for the truth by opening up this book, okay? And this is not a small consequence. There's a warning in this verse. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So every time sort of political season rolls around and everybody wants to sort of capture the attention of the evangelical right or whatever aspect of Christianity they want to appeal themselves to and they leverage God's word to promote their agenda, there is a, it's not a small thing they're doing. Secondly, what else does it speak to us? Well, then it would have provided direction for how they approach worship, public worship specifically. God's name was to be taken up throughout the Old Testament in prayers. And you see this as you read through, especially the Psalms, through prayers, songs, celebrations, and sacrifices, lifting up opportunities to, to lift up God's name. Psalm 63, verse 4, I will praise you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands. Psalm 116, verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. To lift up hands or a, a cup in the name of the Lord was to worship. These are, these are words that are describing worshiping God. These are external expressions of an inward heart posture. A heart that is caught up in the glory of the Lord and wants to elevate his name above their own. We talked about this quite a bit last week and the way we approach God and how we worship him and the attention that we give to our worship. God is not interested in phony displays of reverence, not interested in haphazard or irreverent attempts of worship. Rather, the Bible calls us to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I think specifically in our tradition, this is an area that we have to be careful of. Um, what we see throughout the ages is as Christianity, you know, just continues to move along, that the pendulum sort of swings. And where we find ourselves in sort of modern day contemporary expression of the Christianity of our faith, 
um, the way that we approach him. The pendulum has sort of swung maybe over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years um, sort of towards this casual, irreverent approaching of God. Jesus is my homeboy. Maybe you've heard of him, okay? Um, is an example, right? That, that we want to sort of get rid of sort of the trappings that can come, come along with Christianity and with church and religion. And so we just want to present this authentic, just real expression of our faith. Certainly there's a place for that, but it's a tricky game and it's a slippery slope. That we want to be careful that as we worship God, as we lift up his name, that we do not lose a sense of reverence and awe that it should inspire in us and that it is due. Finally, we can also consider how this commandment would be broken. The type of people that need to hear this is if we think of not just the swearing of oaths, not just public worship, but also the whole of their lives, the whole of our lives for that matter. The idea is that God's people, we said this before, bear his name. And that is no small thing. God's people bear his name. Others would know they belong to God by the name that they claim. And, and then God, with his name associated with his people, that those people would serve as sort of ambassadors throughout his world, representing him, living out his values, and, and pointing others ultimately to the name of God. But often, their lives, this is a high calling. Okay, don't, don't miss that. It's a high calling he's given us. But often, their lives, maybe our lives, don't live up to his name. The, pro, the third commandment was a prohibition against the use of God's name for merely human ambition or false purposes. We've, we've all seen people who have claimed his name but who have intentionally not walked on the path that he's laid out for us, right? In fact, there's maybe some of you today who maybe you're visiting and, and you would say, you know what, I just have a problem with the church or Christianity and it's, it really comes down to hypocrisy. Yeah, I've seen too many hypocrites in my day. Well, you're not, you're not alone. Um, Jesus had a lot to say about those who would maybe claim the name but live a different way. That's what he says in the Gospels. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's not abolishing the law, right? But he's saying, don't worry about those, you know, those things by neglecting these doesn't make any sense. The weightier matters of the law. In the Lord's Prayer, the first petition is hallowed. He teaches his disciples to pray. And the first petition is hallowed be your name. No one who could legitimately pray this prayer, hallowed be your name, wanting to treat it holy and, and reverend and, and, and primary in their life, could at the same time conduct their lives in a way that trivializes or, or many, minimizes the name of God for their own selfish or deceitful ends. But we see it all the time, right? Maybe some of us are even guilty. The, the, the wonderful news about the gospel is the reality is, is what we'll see as we look at these Ten Commandments is none of us can obey each and every one of them. We don't have the ability to. There has to be somebody who can obey, who can 
completely keep God's law. There has to be somebody who can do it. His name, ultimately, is Jesus. Jesus comes and fulfills the law, completely trusts the Father in ways that you and I can't. And the way we get access to God, yes, we know his name, but we have to come ultimately through the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself would reject hypocrisy, the hypocrisy that you and I have seen. John, listen to what John Dixon says about this. He says, attacking hypocrisy is not a recent secular invention. It's not a product of the Enlightenment or our secular age. It comes actually from Moses and from Jesus. Their criticisms of religious hypocrisy were stinging and frequent. In fact, the cross of Christ is God's gracious and loving response to man's inability ultimately to treat the name of God as it ought throughout all of their lives. We just can't do it. That's the truth. Every one of us is hypocrites. The person who says, I don't want to go to church because they're full of hypocrites, we say, come on in. You'll be a good company, right? None of us have the ability to fully do this. The response of God to, to our inability to treat God's name as they ought is he sent his son ultimately to die. The response of God to the misuse of his name, the disrespect, the belittling of his name throughout the ages is ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. Today, those who, who claim the name of God for themselves are supposed to lift up the name of God before the watching world. This is a tremendous privilege, but it's also a significant, huge responsibility. But this is the name we bear. And the name certainly comes with baggage. Absolutely. And there's some of us today who may find ourselves tempted to find maybe, oh, can I use another word other than Christian? I see what Christians are tripping over here or they're tripping over here. Do I really have to be, can I come up with a cute name? I could follow her the way or something like that. This name that we bear is so significant, is so meaningful. Do not distance yourself from this name. What a huge privilege it is to bear it. The Bible says, and there is, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on this name, the name of the Lord, will be saved. We're told in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Church, this is our name. This is our name. What a huge, huge privilege it is. Let's make sure that our lives reflect his glory. First, by surrendering them to Jesus. And secondly, by depending on his spirit and his power to, to just push through life in obedience to his word. I want to close quickly by... Jeez, um, telling a quick story. I've heard this story before. Maybe it's more like a legend. Don't know. Haven't fact-checked it. You can do it after church. I've heard it before. In studying this, this message, it came up again. I saw it, and I thought, oh, this is a good reminder. It's a story of um, Alexander the Great. Maybe you've heard it before. As Alexander the Great moved eastward through Persia toward India, conditions grew more and more treacherous. 
it's harder and harder for those who was traveling with him. And so as a result, he saw more and more deserters. People sort of jumping ship. Typically, such deserters were dealt with swiftly, without mercy. They were hunted down, killed. Stories of an exception. One young man left camp in search for freedom. He was found and brought before Alexander himself. And there he stood in front of the most, you can just imagine the scene, standing in front of the most powerful man on earth. It was running through his mind. For reasons unknown, Alexander decided to let him go unpunished. But not before asking him his name. The young man replied, my name is Alexander. My king, just like yours. The king's response was one that assuredly left an impression on the young man. Young man, he replied, change your life or change your name. Alexander, if you look back throughout history, Alexander and Jesus, both very dynamic and powerful leaders. But they were also very, very different. Very different. One conquered through force and might and domination. The other, in love, humbly laid down his life for his followers. To call oneself a Christian is to claim the name of the greatest king that ever lived. It's a tremendous, tremendous privilege. And as people, we don't just bear his name, we also live his name every day. And it's an opportunity to be invited into what God is ultimately doing throughout eternity, drawing glory to him and his name. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Help us to be a people who keep it, um, who revere, lift up, respect, honor your name as we ought. Help us to, Lord, embody that, put it on display, Lord, and ultimately trust in Jesus and the provision that we have through his grace and mercy, to be invited into the family of God. Lord, we thank you for that, for your grace and your mercy. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.